Basically, it was a rainy night in California. A rare rainy night in and California. And I own shit in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I'm Ion. I'm one of the founders of Read More. We use behavioral design to help you strengthen your reading habit. I'm a software designer out here in Silicon Valley, and my passion is to support us all in our doomed but defining task of self-perfection. And this is Jules. She's a software engineer out here in Silicon Valley, and my fiance. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize what I was supposed to say. I used myself. It's all good. <laughs> he was giving me an expected look, and I was giving him a thumbs up. <laughs> yes, um, so I work as a senior software engineer out in Silicon Valley, and I, I think, did you say uh, we're fiancés? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> she's working on a secret project where if I talk about it, we both go get arrested. Uh, yeah, no, we can't mention what I'm working on, which is pretty cool. I haven't been able to say that before. Um, you have to be pretty careful what information I share. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Uh, oh, yeah, in this conversation of poetry, I'm sure it's going to come up. It, it might come up. Um... So this this conversation on poetry, what is this conversation on poetry? Today we're going to talk about a bunch of different things, but we're we have the theme of strangeness and illusion. So poetry is kind of in a constant conversation with itself. Every poem alludes to poems from the past uh, in kind of a an unending chain. And it it can sometimes be like people trying to ward off their predecessors, sometimes it's people paying homage to their mm. predecessors. Um, and then strangeness is this quality of, it's a felt quality of encountering an alien consciousness, unlike yours, but relatable to you. And what I mean by consciousness here is both in terms of the mind of another, as well as a way of perceiving the world, as in, I'm conscious of my Lego bonsai tree. Um, so Jules has a great example of strangeness here, and she's going to read you a poem uh, from Allen Ginsberg that kind of illustrates the point. Yes. Actually, I think one of his other poems, I know we were talking about me reading the first part of Howl, mm -hmm. but, um, which I also want to read because it's beautiful and um, shows extraordinary detail, but I think his poem about, like, a supermarket in California yeah. really shows well um, making the strange, sorry, uh, making the familiar strange yeah and the strange familiar so that's that's a phrase that um, was talked about a lot in one of my classes in college um, actually it was about the Arctic <laughs> um, I took an entire semester about the Arctic that's cool but um, that the theme really stuck with me and I think can be applied to a lot of things and why sometimes talking about mundane things can be really fascinating and all right with no further ado here is A Supermarket in California by Allen Ginsberg. A Supermarket in California. What thoughts I have of you tonight, Walt Whitman. For I walk down the side streets under the trees with a headache, self-consciousness, looking at the full moon. In my hungry fatigue and shopping for images, I went into the neon fruit supermarket, dreaming of your enumerations. What peaches and what pneumonia? Can you say this word? Oh, uh, penumbras. Yeah, penumbras, thank you. Yeah. What peaches and what 
penumbras. Whole families shopping at night. Aisles full of husbands. Wives in the avocados. Babies in the tomatoes. And you, Garcia Lorca, what were you doing down by the watermelons? I saw you, Walt Whitman, childless, lonely old grubber, poking among the meats in the refrigerator and eyeing the grocery boys. I heard you asking questions of each. Who killed the pork chops? What price bananas? Are you my angel? I wandered in and out of the brilliant stacks of cans following you and followed in my imagination by the store detective. We strode down the open corridors together in our solitary fancy tasting artichokes, possessing every frozen delicacy and never passing the cashier. Where are we going, Walt Whitman? The doors close in an hour. Which way does your beard point tonight? I touch your book and dream of our odyssey in the supermarket and feel absurd. We walk all night through the solitary streets. Oh, <laughs> will we walk tonight? Will we walk all night through the solitary streets? That's a question. <laughs> the streets add shade to shade. Lights out in the houses. We'll both be lonely. Will we stroll dreaming of the lost America of love past blue automobiles and driveways, home to our silent cottage? Ah, dear father, graybeard, lonely old courage teacher, what America did you have when Sharon quit pulling his ferry and you got out on a smoking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of Leith? Wow, I love that. I love that. So I have a little note here. I'm not sure if I wrote it or I bought this book used. So it could have been someone else's note. The um, boatman, Charon. Yeah, it says Charon, Fairman of the Dead. Yeah, yeah. So that last bit, you're in this strange grocery store where you're possessing frozen delicacies and babies are in the tomatoes. Yeah. Um, and there are aisles full of husbands. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you end with, ah, uh, dear father, Greybeard, who's Walt Whitman, I think. Lonely old courage teacher. What America did you have when Sharon quit pulling his ferry and you got out on a smoking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of Leith? I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but yeah, so... That's incredible. You're totally uh, you're, transported. You're totally transported. And, and that sense of like a felt shift in consciousness, mm -hmm. in that moment, I felt that shift in consciousness. Yeah. Where it's like some lever has been pulled in my brain. I'm not explicitly sure why but you're left considering you're left thinking about it you know and it's like oh yeah that last line for me in particular it's like uh, it's kind of like all this beauty all these ideas this conceptualization of america that walt whitman left us with what was it worth when death kind of split apart his world right in the undifferentiated landscape of death um mm -hmm. you know what America is, is left. And, and also there's that mm. Zenist element when he's talking about like husbands in the aisles, babies among the tomatoes. It's yeah. like he has this kind of non-dual awareness that doesn't differentiate between objects of any kind, be them people or tomatoes. 
Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's something I found with Ginsburg is, like, he, um, I saw this, like, interview with him and uh, William F. Buckley, who's this conservative commentator, which was an amazing interview. Oh, you uh, did? Oh, cool. Yeah, they, they have it on uh, YouTube. Mm. And just, like, hearing Ginsburg, like, recite his poems. Oh, that's um, the best way to hear it. Yeah, just his his awareness is is like very fascinating. He has like this boundless kind of awareness, you know, that I feel like is expressed in his poetry, um, probably from just massive psychedelic use. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah he he was known to use lots of um, like I hear I don't know for sure, but he did like lots of peyote, and he'd have like all these ideas. Yeah. And I think there's like an idea that okay, you do a bunch of drugs, you're gonna write some interesting music and poetry, whatever. But what I think is not often talked about is he would spend a lot of time editing, 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 editing. He might write mm. some stuff while he was high, potentially, but yeah, he would he would spend a lot of like sober time, I yeah. think. Well, um, just like really tightening everything yeah. up and just making it like what we know today. Yeah, yeah I mean, excellence... Um, excellence is not the simple product of like exogenous substance use but I will say I think this dichotomy of high and sober doesn't apply well to psychedelics because like typically you know when we talk about like sobriety or inebriation we're talking about a reduction in consciousness right like we're talking about like someone's drunk mm -hmm. they've kind of blunted their awareness or like reduced their self-consciousness and are thereby able to like produce stuff or if someone's on opiates they've kind of numbed or dulled their mm. consciousness whereas with peyote um what you're doing is you're you know among other things like changing the way your thalamus processes input signals um, and allowing different parts of your brain to communicate that weren't previously communicating in a way you're you're perceiving a, a more unfiltered view of reality and specifically unfiltered by the pragmatic vagaries of what's useful or not useful in your pedestrian context. Hmm. Um, so I think in that sense, like it, it does injustice to psychedelics, you know, uh, but it also does injustice to the craft of poetry and being good at things to be like, yeah, if you just do psychedelics or if you just, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, I'm just going to smoke weed and, and I'll be, be in a band. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it no, takes a lot of work. Not, yeah. Like the Beatles too are a great example of just like, attention to detail like extreme amounts of like output editing and just perfectionism combined yeah. with some amount of psychedelic use as well as the use of other drugs that you know um i personally think are in a different category and less useful some would say i'm just selectively stigmatizing those over these mm. but yeah yeah well if you're interested we can also read the first page of Hal, which even to the next level makes the familiar strange. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to put my watch on silent and I totally like did the opposite. <laughs> Damn it. Yes, let's, let's do that. Because I think this will be an interesting one in the context of our current time. Because we live in a time where there's a lot of tumult and there's uh, a lot of people, you know, um, who have a lot of angst. You know, and and uh, there's a lot of unrest. So in a way, like it's a, it's a similar milieu to what he was uh, in at the time. 
Yeah, he was, I think, really disillusioned with what was going on around him. I think it was around World War... What was it? Um, yeah, he was... He lived through, like, um, at least the years a- after World War, the First World War. What? Uh, really? Oh. Okay, so this... I'm looking in the introduction here. This is an introduction written by William Carlos Williams. Um, and he was saying, um, he, as in William Carlos Williams is saying, um, when he was younger and I was younger, I used to know Allen Ginsberg, a young poet living in Patterson, New Jersey, where he, son of a well-known poet, poet had been born and grew up. He was physically slight of build and mentally much disturbed by life, which he had encountered about him during those first years after the first world war. Huh. as it was exhibited to him in and about New York City. Mm. He was always on the point of going away where it didn't seem to matter. And he, he goes on. It's, it's kind of like talking about um, just like he, he's, he, been, he went through some stuff and was kind of disillusioned by it. When, when was Hal written? Does it say? Um, yeah, one sec. It, and there's this line, everyone in his life is defeated, but as a man, if he be a man, is not defeated, is a line. So, he's facing this stuff with, like, some disillusionment, but also with a little bit of humor, which you'll hear, which you definitely heard in, in yeah. the grocery poem. Yeah. Um, and you... And it's throughout Hal as well. There's there's some t- there's definite tongue in cheek. Let's see. Um, I don't know this book. The thing is, even if we find when this book was published, this is like not necessarily. This isn't. Excuse me. The first time Hal was published, I don't think, because this is like a I'm special just edition. Look it up real quick. Yeah. Yeah. So it's published in 1956. Okay. Okay. Yeah, just for just for context, because you know when I um, when I read this poem, I, I thought it was talking about the '60s, even because that's the way it felt, or today, in a way, you know. Um, but I guess every generation has its like malcontents and its element of narcissism that needs to be tempered by experience or not, or doubled down upon, depending on the individual. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I think he was considered like a beat poet. Yeah. Which I think is associated with the 60s, so... Yeah, or the, the 50s, or 50s and 60s? Is it? Is that... Okay. I don't know. Yeah, this was in 56. Yeah. Okay, don't yeah. take my word on him being a beat poet, though. <laughs> we're, right, we're, just, we're, we're just a couple just of engineers <laughs> and designers out here talking about poetry, you know? <laughs> All right, let's read the first page of Howl. Howl. Let's do it. Howl, for Carl Solomon... I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving hysterical naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection, ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and High, sat up, smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities, contemplating jazz. 
who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on the tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes, hallucinating Arkansas and Blake light tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy, crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in unshaven rooms and underwear, burning their money in wastebaskets and listening to the terror through the wall. And it keeps going, you know, who this, who this, who this, and it's all extremely detailed. Um, it's very strong imagery and very making the familiar very, very strange. What? Just like things that he sees walking through the streets, you know? What do you think his take is? Like, do, do you think there's a subtle element of admiration in these people who are, you know, stepping outside of society and, you know, um, <clears throat> basically just standing in opposition to it? Or do you think there's kind of like a commentary towards like um, wasted potential, um, a narcissistic impulse, um, a critical but unconstructive attitude? Because maybe I'm uh, superimposing my own perspective upon um, what he's saying. In fact, I definitely am. But what do you think? By the way, uh, sorry, real quick, the poem you picked for Strangeness and Illusion was perfect. Oh, nice. Yeah, because it, it totally captured the, that element of strangeness, but it also captured the element of illusion because he's talking about Walt Whitman and that history of American poetry. So, But anyway, so back to this. Like, What do you think? I actually haven't read how all the way through in a really long time. It's it's super dense with beautiful images and, you know, intense images, imagery. Um, and also, I really do like reading bite-sized poems and Hal is not bite-sized by, by any means. Um, so it's hard for me to comment on that without having like recently reread the whole thing. I mean, I will say there's a footnote to how, which is a poem in itself, and it just starts with like a whole line of holy, 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 and they all have exclamation marks. The world is holy, the soul is holy, the skin is holy, the nose is holy, the tongue and cock and hand and asshole holy. Everything is holy. Everybody's holy, <laughs> everywhere is holy, every day is eternity, every man's an angel. And it keeps going. And it's a little, like, it's slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it's also, like, very much, like, I don't know, one way to look at it is also kind of a celebration. Holy for, and then these are the last two lines. So I skipped a bunch. Um, holy forgive, forgiveness, mercy, charity, faith, holy, ours, bodies, suffering, magnum... Magnum. Magnanimity. Magnanimity, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Holy, the supernatural, extra brilliant, intelligent kindness of the soul. So this footnote to Hal seems like... Much more positive. Yeah. So... Or, you know... It's, a, uh, it's part of the context of the poem. Yeah. There's, there's shittiness, but there's also... There's some hope. There's... You know, it, it's not like we should just be caught up only in 
one aspect or another times of our lives you know there's also celebration here of even just the celebration of the hand celebration of the asshole yeah (laughs) equally you know to quote part of the beginning yeah yeah so i don't know how, how do you feel how would you answer your own question well i yeah it's 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 interesting to consider like i think that footnote is a profession of interconnectedness and kind of like you know equanimity in a way like where i think these guys were definitely influenced by by buddhism and by eastern philosophy Mm -hmm. the beats you know when you talk about dharma bums jack kerouac um and so there is that sense of like good and bad are complex things and there is a level at which he seems like he's saying that you know these are value judgments we place upon the world um you know after awareness right so he's like is it good or is it bad that the best minds of my generation destroyed themselves Mm. um on one level it's bad On on another level perhaps there's an element of it that's good and then maybe he's also like it's neither well maybe he's not saying the fact that they destroyed no but the whole i'm not talking about destroy themselves i'm talking about the the broader ethos that they that they uh put forth their their opposition to social norms i see they're kind of like you know splitting apart the, the the mainstream culture you know yeah absolutely bad good and indifferent i guess yeah it's like you know for me personally, I think overall, I mean, I think it's true. Elements good, elements bad, also indifferent. I think I listened to a podcast this week on like Dostoevsky and Nietzsche mm-hmm. by what's his name, um, Daryl Cooper. Um, so if you want to check out his podcast, Martyr Made, he has like a five-hour podcast on them. Mm. But it kind of speaks to this like youthful narcissistic perspective of like <clears throat> i know i'm set apart from society i'm the ubermensch i i live and mm-hmm. die by my own rules and the fruit first of all the type of person that's attracted to a philosophy like that is never the kind of person who is actually that you know um uh, yeah <laughs> yeah so that's one like there's a lot of like school shooters out there and you know people throwing bricks through windows who um, think of themselves as you know above uh, conventionality, above morality, mm. and pursuing something deeper and better. So that's self-defined. Um, but when you look at Nietzsche and Dostoevsky's lives, one of them doubled down on it to the bitter end, which was Nietzsche. You know, he he never let go of this idea that he is above and beyond. He's the Ubermensch, uh, at least in his in, in his words to a certain extent and in certain aspects of his actions and he died you know in circumstances of madness um never really fully appreciated for his work in his time whereas Dostoevsky was eventually humbled by life humbled by entering into a relationship humbled by being sent to um a penal colony in Siberia um and came back around and was celebrated you know um much like the prodigal son, you know, he returned and was accepted despite his um, narcissistic deviations. So this is like along with the theme of kind of being disheartened by the culture and what you're seeing around you happening. Um, And people react in different ways. Some people, like Nietzsche, 
like kind of pulled to the bitter end to their narcissism and um what's another word you would use to describe Nietzsche like I think narcissism is pretty apt one (laughs) yeah his critical minds but that feels very much a you know an understatement uh there's a word out there that's perfect, but it's okay. We'll find it later. <laughs> okay, deal. If you remember what it is, let me know. I'll. Whereas it sounds like. Part of it we can, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like Dostoevsky. I can't even say it. Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. Yeah. <laughs> I'm missing something in there, but that's okay. Um, you all know what I'm talking about, so we're good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Plus, you get some flexibility. Like Thank you. Yeah. It sounds like he came around, um, but in the meantime, had done a lot, bunch of writings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 came back and was like, you know, not that he fully, you know, was like, hey, everything about conventional morality, um, the ways of society, the ways of regular folk, you know, everything about that is is positive, but that, you know, man is not created by himself, and, you know, he doesn't have the um, the ability. Or the, the qualification to like set himself outside of society, mm. and pursue this like narcissistic course to any positive effect ultimately. And you know these are deep thinkers. Like Daryl Cooper's done a five hour podcast on it. Don't take my word for it. Listen to the podcast. Read it for yourself and come up with your own conclusions. Yeah. But what I take from it is something like that. And and relating back to how he's talking about the best minds of his generation, kind of like saying, you know what. Fuck society. Fuck the mainstream. Right. Why are we doing things the way we're doing them? And fair enough, right? There's a lot yeah. of arbitrary elements of society and the society of the 50s, even more so. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, what they choose to pursue also comes around to being somewhat empty and arbitrary and ultimately maybe less fruitful. Right. And I wonder if he sees that too because I think he's kind of mourning yeah. these losses. Yeah. I think he does see that. I think he does see that. It kind of reminds me of an episode of Mad Men where, like, um, Don Draper is, like, going to visit some woman and she's more, like, um, more of, like, a hippie. And her her hippie boyfriend is, like, basically, like, you know, who the fuck are you? Like, you know, what what are you doing with your life? You know, like, you're just, like, wearing the suit. You're, like, working. And Don Draper is, like, yeah, but at least I'm doing something, basically. You know? Like, what's there to be gained in this kind of, like, bitter isolationism and um, disconnection with, you know, people in society? This, we got led down a path I wasn't expecting, but it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it was great. It was great. Yeah, I'm glad we engaged with that. It's the power of podcasts. Hell yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's time for, like, a lighter poem, i.e. the poem you wrote? Ah, the poem I wrote, yes. Which is also a great example of taking something very familiar and and viewing it in a new way, encountering it differently. Yeah, yeah. So last week I was in the garden and I was inspired to write this poem called Forgotten Gift in iambic tetrameter. So I do, let's I, see if you can hear, listen for that. Oh, nice. I'm sorry, I hope I didn't speak over him. No, you're fine, you're fine. Iambic Tetrameter. Yeah. I will take credit for the title, but he did literally everything else. I just helped brainstorm the title. I, I did literally everything else. You'll realize. <laughs> well, the dog did it. 
but I helped. But anyway. <laughs> Alright, so, so forgotten give. And there I saw the poop. It sat heavy, leaden, sodden, and waterlogged over, neglected and nestled among the strands, a strange mess forgotten by dog and man. <laughs> so the dog pooped, Woo! but I left it out there overnight. Wait, we need to appreciate it. Thanks. By dog and man. Woo! Yeah, there you go. He did a little bow. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's but about yes. a poop. If, if it was unclear, it's the dog's poop, not Ion's <laughs> poop. Yes, see, I want to make sure you, <laughs> that's understood. Like, <clears throat> Don't want any uh, accusations here. Basically, it was a rainy night in California. A rare rainy night in and California. And Ion's shit in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly. I am. I am went. Yeah, the best minds of our generation just destroyed. You know, <laughs> shitting in the streets. Just shitting in the streets. <laughs> that does sound like an image that could be. No, in a Ginsburg poem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure oh one of the god. lines alludes to something like that. Oh my pay, like, god. I'm glad the sugar is still like coursing through my veins. I was I was worried like when we were looking for bombs that I'd, I'd run out of sugar partway through, but <laughs> I'm still going super strong. Yeah, we're using sugar to help us. Like I know some people record podcasts after drinking. No, we're using sugar. Yeah, we just <laughs> yeah. for the motivation. We're just eating croissants and drinking. I would argue this is coffee. More, I would argue the croissants are probably more butter than sugar. But we have used we used chocolate last time. That was. Mine had a chocolate croissant. So. Oh yeah, yeah. You had sugar. I just, I'm blasphemy. I don't have enough sugar. Maybe. That's fair. <laughs> but it is motivating me. Wait. Do you, do you hear that? Ooh, oh, ASMR podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's my croissant. We can do a whole episode on the history of ASMR. Mm. Sure. We'd have to learn it first. I don't really want to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'd rather so, just be a practitioner. Yeah, do you want to read your your poem you found yeah. on poop as well? I wanted... Shh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Actually, I probably was going to say it. So, like, number one, very impressive that you did it in in formatted. What is it called? Iambic tetrameter. <laughs> yeah, but what's, like, the broader idea of it? It's, like, it's, um... Um, what do you call it? Closed form. Yeah, I think I think that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. That sort of thing. It's somewhat close form. Like it's close form in the sense that it obeys a strict meter. Yeah, obeys meter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not close form in the sense that it, it, it's not like a villanelle. Exactly. Or a haiku. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but that that that's like that just seemed like too much work for what it was, you know. Also, I was just I trying love, to talk about the poop. I love the way it ended up. Oh, but, thank you. Yeah, of course. Does it have the quality of inevitability? You think? Worth. Oh yeah, finding a little poop, bit, right? Finding poop in the yard is very inevitable for us. So. <laughs> yeah. Also, the dog and man, like that to me feels like there's inevitability to it, where it rounds off the poem very, uh, you know, like there isn't another way that that poem should end. It feels. Oh, like. I agree. Yeah. I absolutely agree. All right, go ahead. Read, read your, read yours. Yes, but yeah. Well, I just one more comment because I yeah. definitely know that our dog has forgotten about the poop immediately after pooping. <laughs> so, yes. So it's very true. It's more true for it him has even. Been forgotten than... by dog and man. Um, 
He's just in a good mood. He doesn't remember why. Oh, he's in a great mood. He loves having just poop. That's when, <laughs> That's when he's the most, like, uppity or, like, less willing to listen to our commands. Yeah. Right after he's pooped. Just he's like victorious. A, like, yeah. He doesn't need he, us. He's like a little Nietzsche. He's just yeah. all hopped up on his sense of victory. But regardless... Poop is a very legitimate thing to talk about in poetry. And to prove that, I have uh, one published by Frank O'Hara in his Lunch Poems collection. And this one's just called Poem. So please enjoy. Wouldn't it be funny if the finger had designed us to shit just once a week? All week long, we'd get fatter and fatter. And then on Sunday morning, while everyone's in church, plop. <laughs> <laughs> How ridiculous is that? I actually is that know, the whole poem? That's the whole poem. <laughs> that's the entire poem. So I haven't, I haven't shown this to Ian because I wanted to see the action. But I was that's like, ridiculous. just wait till you hear this poem. It um, just sounds like a little kid who's like... <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny? What if, yeah. <laughs> By the way, the finger is capitalized, oh so we know that it's God is the finger. Yeah. So he's just this disembodied, like, hand pointing down, like, making a decision. Yeah. Oh, like, on a whim. What if people just pooped once a week? All right. <laughs> and I'm, like, gesturing right now. I'm pointing. Um, I actually don't like this poem. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. Yes, yeah, but... it is. <laughs> <laughs> But I think there's something about it. Like, you're reacting to it. And it's yeah, not, Yeah, like, It has the quality of strangeness. It yeah. It prompts a shift in consciousness a little bit, you know? <laughs> Where you're like, huh. And look the way it's written. So there are two stanza- stanzas, and then plop is in its own stanza, like, w- off to the side as though... Like, it visually evokes the, like, idea of, you know, defecation, and it's plopping off to the side. So if you yeah. look up the form of the poem, it... It is directly related to the subject. Yeah, it it also really encapsulates, like, the importance of sound and, like, the way in which a poem is a word picture. Mm. Like, that's what's, like, kind of offensive about it in a way. Yeah. It's, like, it's too, like, sensory. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) So, reading, if you're physically reading it, there's that extra level of sensory input of the form of the poem you physically see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. You're <laughs> that was very, uh, that was very appropriate considering what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so we're on a lighter note now. So uh, another example of strangeness I wanted to share because this is a fun one to read is by E. E. Cummings. Ooh. Actually, you you tell me if this is if this counts because this is a really maybe a different type of strangeness as opposed to what we're talking about. <laughs> But, still recovering from my cold, but let me clear my throat for this. Okay. Anyone lived in a pretty how town with up so floating many bells down. Spring, summer, autumn, winter. He sang his didn't, he danced his did. Wait, who wrote that? Oh, I'm sorry. E.E. Cummings? No, that's it. Yeah. What's it called? Um, let me see. It doesn't have the name in this book. Oh, that's okay. Is it just a portion of his poem then? Might be, but it's definitely... Well, what do you think? Do you think that counts as strangeness? I can read it once more. Yeah, I'll need to hear it again, I think. Anyone lived in a pretty how town with up so floating many bells down. 
Spring, summer, autumn, winter, he sang his didn't, he danced his did. Hmm. The introduction of the character at the end is interesting. Yeah. I like the vi- like the visual quality of it, where it's like, it's so, um, it's so generic and nonsensical and yet evocative still for me. Yeah. You know, like anyone lived in a pretty high town. It's literally any, it's the most generic way to describe a person, anyone. And how, how's a, how, how's how spelled? <laughs> is it? H-O-W? No E. Okay, so a pretty how town. Yeah, so that's interesting. I don't interesting even know period. what he means there, but you sort of also know what he means. Right, right, way. right. Yeah. That's the thing about this poem that's interesting. And like with up so floating many bells down, somehow that also creates a picture in my head, even though it's like clearly somewhat nonsensical. Yeah, I'm thinking of like white picket fences. Yeah, like yeah. town here, just from those two lines. Yeah. Even though it's not literally what he's saying. It's interesting. Yeah, and I'm picturing like either like bells swinging or balloons in the air or like lanterns in the air or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. You know, then spring, summer, autumn, winter. So all the time, this guy, he sang his didn't, he danced his did. So he didn't sing, he danced. The way, the way I personally took this is there's an element of inauthenticity and a schism in him where he's, the things he's saying are inauthentic, but the things he's doing reveal him. So he sang his didn't, he danced his did. Oh, I really like that interpretation. Just a regular person in a regular town with a split at the center of his reality. And he's saying things he doesn't mean, but doing, but his actions are speaking for what he really means. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. that's intriguing. Right? Right. And that's something everyone can relate to, but yeah. it's written about in a really like strange way. Yeah, so there is that element of strangeness. Yeah, I think so. It being nonsensical is not the same as it being strange. So this is an interesting poem to kind of break that apart a little mm. bit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, there's another example of a poem where I wonder, like, you tell me, like, is this strange? Is this not strange? Is like Kubla Khan. Um, which I really like by... Who's Kubla Khan? Like, I've definitely heard that name, but I haven't, like... I have no context in my mind for it. Yeah, Kubla Khan... Well... He's a Mongolian warlord. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was more like that. Wait, did he write? Um... So Samuel, actually, it's not Keats, it's Coleridge. It's another romantic. Oh, he's writing but, about Kublai Khan. Yeah, yeah. And this, this poem has an, has an element of strangeness, colloquially speaking, but I'm not sure if it has the quality of strangeness that we're talking about poetically. So let me read it, and you tell me if you think this qualifies. Shoot. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Mm. That line of measureless to man down to a sunless sea, I mean, that's that sounds strange to me. That's a strange way to talk about normal things, like in a beautiful way. Yeah. So yeah. that definitely, in my mind, qualifies. You know what's interesting? The same thing caught me. I guess, um, yeah. I guess technically everything is up to like the the readers like is this strange to you or isn't it like in the end stuff that we found strange other people might not very true very true yeah 
Very true. But yeah, it's in- maybe there's someone out there that's like, oh, I always think of the sea as sunless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like, you know, the sur- anything below the surface of the water is sunless. Like that's what it is, the sea is. Oh you know? wow, it is talking about the darkness below the sea. Wow, that's also like kind of provocative yeah. to think about. Yeah, right. Right. There's a game called Sunless Sea. Really. Yeah, it's an indie game where like you're you're this like submariner. Um, in this like steampunk submarine in like this dark dystopian world that's like in an underground sea and it's like dark and literally wow. physically dark but also dark in theme now i'm curious whether the title of the game was inspired by the poem or someone individually thought of that phraseology or that phrase fair question i i suspect it was inspired by the poem but it's a fair question because people do come up with things like you know convergently independent so, of each other yeah Watch yeah calculus calculus yeah yeah no, that's my favorite example the calculus the calculus of wars <laughs> we can i, I want to talk about like this steven strogatz book infinite powers at some point on this podcast it's about calculus but it's not like calculus wars it's about like the history but it's also about like the breadth of application and like how calculus reveals the secrets of the universe Ooh, that sounds really cool. I, I'm not going to read that, but I'll listen to your podcast. <laughs> okay, deal. <laughs> that's a deal. Okay, so one, one thing I wanted to talk about that's like, you know, perhaps like partially related um, is, actually, maybe we'll save this. The inevitability piece and like, you know, sublimity and loftiness, things like this we can talk about in the future. Because we don't want to pack everything into like this one thing. So, okay. do you want to read some poems? Is there something that's calling to you? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, I have some Yeats poems that I love. Yeah. Let's hear them. So, um, which one do I want to, do I want to read first? Yeah, this one. This poem is like more about imagery I think in terms of our theme okay so this is William Butler Yates W.B. Yates it says but I'm pretty sure yeah, yeah <laughs> I was I like oh yeah. now that I'm being recorded I want to like hedge my bets <laughs> that's a beautiful but, book by the way yeah I really I bought this used as well I really like it yeah the purple purple like edges of the pages is like really nice yeah. So for anyone listening, this is a poet to his beloved, the early love poems of W.B. Yeats. Introduction by Richard Eberhardt. And it's just kind of pretty. It's a cream book with some purple detailing and iconography. And actually, any, anyone who loves Yeats, I recommend this book because most of the poems are accompanied by like sort of like a romantic image in the pages and just a collection of like his love poems or well early love poems of course because that's in the title but it's just kind of nice so if you like some having love poems by your bedside this was a nice option okay to the poem he wishes for the clothes of heaven had i the heavens embroidered clothes and wrought with golden and silver light the blue and the dim and the dark clothes of night and light and the half light. I would spread the clothes under your feet. 
But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. Mm. I love that poem. I like it too. I like it too. Yeah, it speaks to this like, you know, inner sensitivity, this kind of sense of like the eternal within the finite, you know, like he really like captures this like boundlessness and expresses his desire for his like, for, to share it and give it away to his partner. Um, and he's doing that in a very concrete way. I mean, he's describing beautiful clothes from heaven that he's imagining. Yeah. And like, if he had that, he would give it all away for his beloved to walk on, you know, but he doesn't have that. But yeah, so what well, the point I'm trying to make there is the that concept of he would give anything being written about in, in the form of beautiful clothes and detailing that like concrete imagery is just really well done and yeah. interesting to me. It is. It, it really is. And like, when he says, had I the heavens embroidered cloths and wrought with golden and silver, silver light, the blue and the dim and dark cloths of night and the light and the half light. First of all, I love that line. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, doesn't that the sound rhythm, great? Yeah. Coming out of, oh, your mouth, yeah. The rhythm's amazing. Oh, my yeah. God. Um, but I wonder, is he talking about the sky? Yeah. Yeah. But he's talking about the sky as if it were... Oh, like, yeah, yeah, like, using, like, like, like metaphor. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that concreteness is what makes it come to life, as opposed to being, like, had I the sky, I would give it to you. (laughs) But I don't have the sky, (laughs) so I can't give it to you. So, here you go. (laughs) Yeah, that's my version of this. (laughs) But, yeah, I I love that. I mean, it's also so sweet and... Saying, like, here, I'm giving this all to you, but, you know, please be careful because you are, you know, you're walking on... He's just making himself vulnerable, saying, yeah. I'm vulnerable to you because of the way I feel about you. It's like painful sensitivity. Yeah, wearing your heart on your sleeve. It, like, hurts like, me right now. Right? Yeah. Especially, like, yeah, I mean, I just think, <clears throat> you know... So much of, you know... um Dating involves affectation or self-protection mm. or the hiding of your sensitiveness and your vulnerability. Yeah, I hate that about dating. <laughs> well, we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So. Also, we didn't really do that. No, we didn't do that. We didn't do that. No, we so I was like... Notably, bad. notably didn't do that. Yeah. Um, which anyway. was... Yeah, worked out, worked out well. But, but a lot of dating is like that. You know, like this just feels like he's just like revealing his throat like oh, I just yeah. I just feel like there's it's gonna he's not gonna make it like, oh yeah no it's gonna be bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a sad outlook but that's what I when I see that I'm just like I wanna it just, might be okay though yeah if he's if he's like with this person if this person feels the same way yeah yeah you know if they're like I love no bullshit yeah and yeah. you know I connect with you then 100% be fine 100% <laughs> Yeah, but if he doesn't know them, and if he's oh yeah, if he just chose a random somewhat person. infatuated, yeah. he's going you know he's jump 
this is about to be stomped on and he's oh, his poems so, are gonna turn so, you know so stomped it's gonna be Alan's, Alan Ginsberg poems before long <laughs> I mean some of the poems if I remember uh, in that book collection some of them are him being you know yeah. losing love if yeah. I remember correctly yeah you know they're not all rainbows yeah well actually that's something interesting too is like Mm-hmm. Like the Nietzsche and Dostoevsky's that we were talking about, a large part of that podcast that I was describing is about their personal lives and specifically even their love lives. And Nietzsche and Dostoevsky both were perpetually caught in love triangles. Really? Um, were perpetually like the weird friend trying to like, you know, get someone to like leave their partner and always failing. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, but Dostoevsky eventually succeeded. Um, and in succeeding, he grew within. His yes, relationship. that relationship really helped to temper wow. his narcissism because he was forced to consider somebody else. Um, and I think relationships definitely have that that uh, impact. Like I felt that with us dating, where you know it's definitely made me a much more connected and perceptive and like you know, um, uh, I would say like le- definitely a, a more selfless person than I was. Oh yeah, same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think a good, healthy relationship will do that in a balanced way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've grown a lot. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, which for, for him too, like, you want, you want to talk about that vulnerability. I guess that's going back to Howell and, and people contending with the arbitrariness and suffering intrinsic to life. You know, it's like, do you, you know get stomped on and turn towards bitterness or do you get stomped on and turn towards growth and, and connection and like use your your suffering as a means to connect with others knowing that we're all suffering together you know, you know mm. tangential but worth considering yeah yeah let me read one <laughs> so I would that we were, my beloved, white birds on the foam of the sea. We tire of the flame of the meteor before it can fade and flee. And the flame of the blue star of twilight, hung low on the rim of the sky, has awakened in our hearts, my beloved, a sadness that may not die. A weariness comes from those dreamers, dew-dabbled the lily and rose. Ah, dream not of them, my beloved, the flame of the meteor that goes. Or the flame of the blue star that lingers, hung low in the fall of the dew. For I would we were changed to white birds on the wandering foam, I and you. I am haunted by numberless islands and many a Danaean shore, where time would surely forget us and sorrow come near us no more. Soon far from the rose and the lily and fret of the flames would we be, where we only white birds, my beloved, <clears throat> buoyed out on the foam of the sea. Definitely has that strangeness. Yeah. I feel that shift of consciousness. You feel it. When you read a poem, there's a magnitude and a gravity. And again, I feel personally that sense of like a gear has turned inside of you and you don't know where. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you feel touched. Yeah. Yeah. By the yeah. And I haven't read this in a while, but is he saying, like, I I would prefer to be something a little more mundane but beautiful, i.e. the birds buoyed on the foam of the sea, as opposed to something that's more ephemeral, like 
a star or a rose. Is that what he's saying? I I should have listened more closely while you were reading it because I was also listening for like the beautiful rhythm. Yeah. And I was like, oh wait, I need to listen to the content too. Um, you got to read it a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, you totally got to read it a couple of times. I mean, it, what do you see in it? Maybe you were hearing the content. I, I see a few different things. One thing I see is, you know, the flame of the meteor or the flame of the blue star of twilight. There's this fire of early infatuation, but it's very mm-hmm. ephemeral mm-hmm. and it's burning through the sky and it's awakened a sadness because it's like, you know, it's going to pass. Right. Whereas if you're white birds upon the sea on the wandering foam, you're steady, you're equanimous, but you're, you know, out there, you're buoyed out on the foam of the sea, you know? Yeah. You're so lifted you're up right. together. Yeah. 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 I think you totally spoke to it. It's like that aspiration for something um, peaceable and lasting, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, you're traversing the sea together. Yeah. You rise together. Yeah. That pair of white birds, I mean, that's just a beautiful image. It is. And, and the, I mean, the whole thing is beautiful from, from top to bottom, and it, it resonates in the sense that we were talking about the dopamine system recently. If you remember, we were talking about, like, pain and pleasure, how rewarding dopamine hits or dopamine spikes above mm-hmm. baseline are accompanied with a negative um, negative spike in terms of your perceived pleasure. So you have some chocolate and you, you feel good and then you feel slightly bad because you're like, I want more chocolate. Mm, right. And this speaks to this where it's like you have this, this you know, a pleasureful rise of infatuation but instantly you feel that withdrawal that sense that it's not enough and it's dwindling but you want more of it mm-hmm. you know yeah so it's psychologically salient in that way too saying that this like burning you know the beautiful meteor that's wonderful in itself but the person is looking you know towards the longevity that he so for even more greatly desires. Yeah. Yeah, it's true to life and it's true to biology too. You know, which I guess there's no distinction. But to me what I mean is it's true to the experience of life as well as the neurobiological description of how our reward and pleasure systems function. Right. Oh my god, yeah. That's a good that's a really nice way to tie it all together. I really like this collection. Right? I love I love this. I just honestly that's the first Yates I encountered. I was just I just picked this up. I was like, it's a poet I've heard about. Let me encounter him. Um I bought this very inexpensive used book and yeah, these have been my favorite poems by him. I'm a sucker for love poems. I also really like Pablo Neruda. Yeah, I'm excited to look at some of those time. too. Yeah. yeah. He has a lot of love poems. Although not only love poems, but no, I'm, I'm ex- I, I only read his love poems. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, no, I really I really uh I really enjoyed that. And I wanna go through some Emily Dickinson too. I mean Yeah, we'll do we should do that too sometime. Honestly there are so many podcasts, like and when I say podcast really I just mean conversations mm-hmm. that we can have on this on this stuff. Like I wanna talk about Walt Whitman. I wanna talk about Emily Dickinson. I want I wanna talk about the canon too. Like I wanna start with Chaucer 
and walk through the canon so that you guys like and us when you're listening you build that web of illusions such that when you read poetry you're privy to that deeper conversation that's been going on for hundreds of years yeah. you know um Oh, speaking, I just want to, sorry, do you mind if I... No, yeah, please, please. I just want to say, speaking of Walt Whitman, um, for those who are not familiar, I meant to say this when we were talking about Ginsburg, but um, he was very much inspired by Walt Whitman. And of course, you know, he's mentioned in that poem that we read, but also the way um, Ginsburg has writes, you can't see this while we're reading, but he writes very long lines and um, that that is a directly pulling from Whitman is, mm-hmm. you know, from, from Whitman's leaves of grass. So yeah, yeah Ginsburg was definitely yeah. impacted. Yeah. You can tell. And more than just like talking about him, but also in the way he writes his poems. Well, I, th- I think also, you know, you feel his like wild exuberance and that American spirit come through in both Ginsburg and Whitman. Um, in different ages and you also feel like you know you, you there's some more direct comparisons too like when you talk about Howell maybe I'm reading into this but what I read is in the song of myself Walt Whitman talks about you know a barbaric yop you know echoing over the rooftops that sense of like you know exuberantly just like you know expressing himself and like you know being a, being a basically just a wildling out there on the prairies and how kind of like alludes to that in a way to me, you know. Um, Man, yeah. There. To back to your earlier point, yeah. There's so much we can say about all this, and yeah, it's a conversation, which is cool. Like philosophy, you know, philosophers are responding to other philosophers, yeah. and that's some where interesting context lies. Same for poets sometimes too. I would love to do some philosophy podcasts with you too, because that's a topic I'm very interested in. The only challenge with that is like you know. It takes so long to read. Yeah, and exactly. And I say this is someone who, like, was a philosophy major, and I've read a lot, but it was so long ago, so I'd have to reread it. No, I've been I've been rereading the same three pages on Kant like all week, like oh, several times. So I understand. Freaking Kant. <laughs> but I mean, for real, like the the two subjects where I feel like I've had to like stop and just be like, I'm not as smart as I think is like, <laughs> like math and philosophy. Like, it's where you just experience, like, like, what did I just see? Like, what, what was that, you know? But that's fun, you know? It's, it's fun. And, and if I may say, that's sometimes, like, when I'm, like, not paying attention enough. As a dyslexic person reading even just, like, your average thing, sometimes I'm like, what did I just read? Okay, that's good. That's good, like, um, that's a good frame of reference. It's an interesting way to put it, yeah. And so... That's hard. Yeah, so it yeah. makes, like, rereading necessary sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. And, of course, everyone's experience with dyslexia is different, but... Yeah. I wanted to do the dyslexic advantage with you sometime, too, because... Oh, yeah, we can talk about that book. Yeah, because when we're talking about, like, you know, read more, right? The whole premise being that reading is difficult, important, and, like, being squeezed out of your life by devilish attention thieves who don't give a shit about you, who want you to be pissed off, and paying attention to their nonsense, and don't want you to be a free-thinking, independent person. Maybe don't even believe that a free-thinking, independent person exists. You know, um, like we're, what we're trying to do is like set you up to fight against that cultural current and those uh, nefarious actors. You know who they are: Facebook, 
um, short form media, um, just all the bullshit that's out there. You know what it is. Uh, but for you as a dyslexic person, there's another layer of challenge that okay. I think would be an opportunity because there are advantages to that processing style too. But I have other dyslexic friends who I would love to, I would love for them to hear about that book and your experience with that book. Yeah. Would you consider a podcast a short form, like, media? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I just like, I think in an hour on like, you know, great poetry or like, but that's a fair question, right? Or even our app, like yeah. we're making an app that's using uh, behavioral uh, economics and behavioral design techniques to get you to read more. So, you know, how are we different? Well, the way we're different is picture like two people. One is like a personal trainer, right? Like he's trying to like use his various motivational techniques to get you to work out more and be fitter because you've come to him for that. Now picture another person who's like a con man on the street who's like, you know, trying to get you to send $5,000 to like his uncle in Nigeria. Or even someone trying to like get you to read a really short article that's just going to make you angry, you know, like instead of like benefiting you in the long term. But that's what I'm saying is yeah. like, but I guess the better example might be like, you know, someone who's, um, yeah, just like hawking cheap entertainment your way, you know? Um, and there's nothing wrong with that in moderation, Yeah. but they don't care about moderation. Yeah. Right. And, and, um. Yeah, but so I, I'd love to do uh, Dyslexic Advantage with you as well as like dig more into like all sorts of poetry. And at some point we can do a little bit of philosophy too. Sounds good. Yeah. And then um, on the app, you know, if you want to email us, contact at readmore.io, uh, rdmr.io, sorry. Um, subscribe to the podcast. Um, we are Reading Rebellion on Twitter. Um I have never really used any social media platforms, but this week we're going to start using them because that's how much we care about this mission. We want to reach out to you. Um, that literally I would use the devil's Twitter to, to do that. <laughs> um, and that's it. Come back next week. Next week we're going to talk about... Um, <clears throat> I believe we're going to talk about how you can analyze and interpret movies and get more out of movies because... We're recording these a little out of sequence. This one is after the storytelling one from last week, which I'm recording after this, really. Basically, we're recording all out of order, but we think we're going to release the movie one after we release this one. Yes. <laughs> and I hope you enjoy it. Me too. Goodbye. Bye.